What up, what up, what up? Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Watch. Me and Andy talked a little bit about the changes in the Star Wars extended universe. Uh, sounds like they're going to slow down production on these anthology movies after the box office, I guess you could call it failure. I mean, they made a lot of money, but the box office failure of Solo, a Star Wars story. So Andy and I talked about what that means for the future movies and whether or not they should be looking forward or looking backward anymore. Then I was joined by... Marvel's Cloak and Dagger showrunner, Joe Pekaski, and it was a really cool interview. We talked about his show, Marvel's Cloak and Dagger. It's on Freeform. I highly recommend it. It is uh, a very, very fully realized show for one that's so early on in its run. Uh, it's only, I think only three episodes have gone up so far. Uh, Aubrey Joseph and Olivia Holt play these two teens who have these latent superpowers that are powerful together. And they've had this childhood trauma that brings them together later in their lives and their teenage years. And it's just a really excellent, kind of like Friday Night Lights meets X-Men. Uh, if you want to read more about Star Wars Lindbergh, Ben Lindbergh has a great piece on TheRinger.com right now uh, that's just about sort of the state of their movies, the movie franchise. So Jeff, definitely check that out. Check out all our NBA draft coverage. We'll be on tonight on Twitter video of the entire we're going to watch along with the entire first round of the draft so hang out with us tonight uh and let's get into this episode of the watch thanks i need support staff to clear the room stand up and walk now hello and welcome to the watch my name is chris ryan i am an editor at theringer.com and joining me in the studio on indefinite hiatus it's andy greenwald listen man it's it's thursday i just gave you a burrito you give me half of a burrito. Well, we share. Is it ham? I have half of a podcast with you. How do so, you feel about sharing food? Are you a big sharing guy? Uh, like in a small plates menu? Uh, let, no. Chris, let within, me, within the, like, that's, me, those fries are on my plate. Let me explain how our menu works. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, if, what are you saying here? Like, if I asked you if I could have a french fry? I find that within couples, uh -huh. often, and I don't know, we're, uh, in some ways, we're a couple. How dare you qualify it? We are uh, fully a couple. There is like a there's like a rules and regulations to how meals go and whether oh. or not. So I often yeah. will order with my wife in mind. Oh, because you know she's going. She to basically take a wants to be adventurous, but doesn't want it on her plate. <laughs> oh, interesting. So what what do you order then? That is like you get like a little side of the bone marrow, or like what do you get? No, like it's not even that. It's just like I I order things to keep her in mind because <laughs> I you know just it's very, <laughs> very thoughtful of you. Thank you. Do you think on it's also our self preservation? But we can save that for a different podcast <laughs> on our Facebook group. Is there anyone who's shipping us yet? <laughs> I'm just curious. <laughs> like, is there a Tumblr about us? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Andy, uh, we have Joe Pekaski on today. Uh, he is the showrunner of Cloak and Dagger. A Marvel's show. Cloak Marvel, and Dagger, my Marvel's friend. Cloak and Dagger. God, God forbid we not give Marvel the credit here. Uh, Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, which is a show on Freeform. I think the show's excellent. Just debuted a couple weeks ago, I think. Uh, I think they put up the first two. It's on its third episode to, now. To record ratings yeah. on Freeform. And it is a really, really excellent show. I would say, you know, obviously if you're a comics fan, you may know about Cloak and Dagger from uh, the comics world. But <laughs> You look at me when you say that. I did not know about this. Really? And I went into it pretty blind. And it's basically like Friday Night X-Men. It's like Friday yeah. Night Lights meets X-Men. It's about these two teenagers played by Olivia Holt and Aubrey Joseph. Excellent lead performances. Um, and it's basic. It's set in New Orleans, but a very eerie kind of abandoned New Orleans. And uh, it's about these two teenagers in high school or high school age who discover 
latent powers that they were given when they were children after a childhood trauma. Complementary powers. Yeah, and it, they're it, complementary powers. And point. I would say, I would agree with you. I mean, I think it's particularly a good show for younger people as it's intended. And mm-hmm. I, I, I do not mean that pejoratively. That's a very hard lane to fill. But I also think that the show is exciting because it suggests that Marvel might be do right by some of its fringier characters. Yes. The potential in them. There's a reason why Cloak and Dagger are not household names. They are, frankly, it's a bizarre set of superheroes, barely heroes. Yeah. Uh, emerge in the 80s, um, one black, one white, one representing light, one representing dark in their powers. Generally, like, the most emo comic book characters in sure. history. Yeah. And every time they would show up on the fringes of other comics that I was reading in the 80s, it gave me like a feeling like I would like lingered on the wrong TV channel, like grown up stuff. Yeah, they were yeah, always yeah. around drugs and homelessness, and they were deeply unhappy except with each other, which is all fascinating stuff for other TV shows and other movies and other books. But to see, and certainly music, um, the My Chemical Romance back catalog yeah. would have something to say about this. So it's particularly interesting to see it play out on television. And the first episode is directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood, who did a, uh, Beyond the Lights, which is a uh, she's a great director, and it has. The show itself has this very naturalistic feel, not dissimilar from the, what Peeper did with Friday Night Lights. So uh, we'll have our interview with Joe in a it's, little bit. It, it's something that we think, I think that we should continue having a conversation about even after this interview, because as someone who has been spending a bunch of time considering directors and d- the directing of TV, hashtag mood is <laughs> Big ev- deal. everything, particularly in pilots. and. You know, I said it as a joke because I don't know a way to articulate it. I mean, to articulate something and then actually have it on the screen is incredibly challenging. Yeah. And then to do it under whatever circumstances they had. So I would recommend it even if you're not a comic book fan for people who are interested in that, in seeing how uh, a pilot, how a director yeah, can Yeah, how a director can affect that. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Star Wars news this week before we get to our interview with Joe. Uh, so there was a report in Collider that has since been followed up in a fo- couple of different um, outlets. Basically that they have, uh, I'm not sure this is the accurate phrasing, but suspended operations on the anthology stories. Press pause. They have a lot of stuff in development, so you can make the argument that they're just devoting more of themselves to uh, the finishing out the original, the the trilogy, the Abrams, Johnson Abrams trilogy, and then there is a possible future Johnson trilogy. There is also a suggestion that there's going to be, not suggestion, there is a deal for Benioff and Weiss to make other Star Wars movies. And then there is a live action show that is supposed to go on the to come Disney over the top That's not been paused, right? That's not been paused. And Jon Favreau uh, is in charge of that. Can I ask you a quick question? Sure. I haven't spoken to our team in a minute or two here, but how, what is the status of our uh, pit of Sarlacc proposed spinoff. I don't, you know, it's it's weird. I'm waiting for Kathy's notes on that, and I haven't gotten them back yet. Because the last time I talked to her, I pitched it as kind of a Garfield without Garfield, but a movie about, oh, a, I thought it was about more... a hole in the ground <laughs> that literally can do nothing unless a bounty hunter falls into See, it. See, that's kind of the problem, I think, because you mm. sent that in, and then I was like, it's like Dogville, but inside a Sarlacc pit. Oh, yours is better. Mm. <laughs> Either <laughs> one of them is good. Um, Fair. This is a reaction, obviously, to the less than expected box office results of Solo, uh, a Star Wars story, which came out in May Mm -hmm. and uh, has 
really borne the brunt of a of whatever Star Wars backlash there was on the, in the fan community for Last Jedi, which I still find completely ridiculous and and nutty. Now we are seeing it in sort of more of a, a commercial way with Solo because yeah, the marketplace rejected it. People rejected this movie, yeah, and I think that there is a lot of arguments about why that happened. Now, most Star Wars movies, including Rogue One, which is a darker and more complicated movie than uh, than Solo, um, get almost a full year of promo. In a, in a, you know, mm-hmm. like they have, they come out in December, and usually that full year, there's three trailers, and by the time you get up to the release date, there are these extended trailers. <laughs> and the beauty of Rogue One is you have trailers that have nothing to do with the movie they ended up making. I know exactly, and it's the a same journey. could be said for Solo, yeah. I'm sure. But uh, you know, Bradford Young thought he was shooting a McCabe and Mrs. Miller tribute, inside and Ron Howard of, came in inside yeah. the pit of Sarlacc. Exactly. I don't. I don't. I guess what, what I want to ask you is. Is this necessarily a bad thing? Uh, it's not. And I was thinking about this a lot. And uh, obviously, I mean, we have a showrunner for a Marvel TV show coming on in a minute. Obviously, Chris and I are not only interested in Marvel as a business success story, we are generally fans of their output. I think that Marvel has done a really unique job in considering both their movies as individual movies, but also the larger project in the way one would consider a movie. And the thing about movies is they move in one direction and they have momentum. And if you look at the way that Kevin Feige and his team, a team that is now, I'm sure, tripled or quadrupled or more since the early days, they were all building towards something. And we talked a lot about what that something was in the form of Infinity War. But those first movies felt like they were they were telling us pieces of one story moving in one direction. If you look at the Star Wars movies, the trilogy, the spine that they are now returning to, was continuing an old story. And whether they succeeded or failed at that, you know, we can revisit that when the time is right. But these tangential stories were telling stories that were completely adrift in the greater galaxy in relation to the main spine, which isn't to say that everything has to be connected, but I think that for an audience, that just doesn't make any sense. It feels haphazard. And if you can feel, if a movie franchise that they're spending, you know, however much money on, that they're expecting a return of a billion dollars in, feels haphazard, if it feels pointless, that trickles down. And the audience can understand that. So I think Rogue One told a cool story. And as we said at the time, maybe the one actually interesting question mark left in left over from the original trilogy. Right. How did they ever get the original plans? These other stories just feel like either fan service or filling filling holes with widgets that you're not interested in. You know, I don't think there was a great clamor for a, for a Han Solo movie unless it was the Han Solo everyone wanted. Yeah. But again, it's filling in something backwards while they're trying to make the whole thing move forward. It doesn't make sense. I think that if they had maybe planned a secondary series of movies that would build towards, like Marvel did with the Avengers, towards something new, you know, introduce new characters through these side stories, leading into what would become the new trilogy. I I mean, I'm just spitballing here. But I do think that it's a sense of momentum and shared purpose that these things lack. We both, at the time when Kathy Kennedy took over, admired, in theory, the idea of them just mining this the way you would mine Greek myths for IP. But it doesn't work like that in today's marketplace. People do approach movies the way they approach TV shows. I watched season one, I can't wait for season two, and I love the way it set up season three. And Star Wars so far has not shown an ability to adjust to that new um, universe. Yeah, and they haven't shown the ability to properly pull off their Ant-Man, which is, you know... Exactly, you don't do Ant-Man first. It's not even a chronology thing as much as if you want to make a smaller Star Wars movie that's about a heist and a couple of betrayals and it has like a... It's something of a spaghetti western meets Ocean's Eleven with Han Solo in the middle. Take my money. Take my money. But I think that each one of these movies, because of the price tag, feels like it needs to launch its own 
uh, universe, and it can't. They can't do that. And I think that the participation where it's like, here's this standalone movie that has some connective tissue to a larger world, and at the end of the day, Ant-Man will play a part in one of these Avengers movies. Sure. That's, that's a smart way to do it. But to also take an Am- iconic character who is, spoiler alert, dead, and re-backfill his history that a lot of people were kind of like, I think the coolest part about this guy is that we have no idea where he came from. Yeah. Um, He's fully formed in A New Hope. Yeah. We don't need yeah. more. Um, but you, I think you nailed it with the Ant-Man thing. I mean, I'm excited to see that movie because it looks fun. Not because it's tied to anything yeah, else, and I but it's worth that, noting, Ant-Man came 10 movies into this whole project. Like, and that's the thing, is what we're losing, essentially, is this Boba Fett movie, maybe, that James Mangold was signed up to write, and this rumored Obi-Wan movie. And I gotta admit, I'm not really that interested in what, I don't, uh, Boba Fett's cool because Boba, you have no idea who B- B- Boba Fett is. Assuming you to, forget about the prequels. Yeah, right, exactly, I know. I mean, yeah, Boba Fett, and, and, the re, and it's, again, it's this is harder than it looks. We don't pretend to know how to make this work, or even that it should work, but the thing that makes... Boba Fett cool. He has an iconic suit and he seems menacing and he's in the background. Those are the things that made it attractive to James Mangold, the filmmaker we have a lot of time for. And he f- clearly felt motivated to tell a story, but they're trying to have it both ways. And yes, Marvel had an advantage of time by getting started early, but that's the that's the playing field. They're not ready to make their Logan yet because they haven't figured out how to make their X-Men. Exactly. You know, and and so they're in an in a um, ecosystem that I'm sure to Kathy Kennedy feels very unfair because it would be super fun to make a Han Solo movie that's like Thor Ragnarok. And I think that's what Lord and Miller were going to do. Yeah, yeah. But sorry, I know the audience wants that, or they think they want that, but they're not ready to make that yet. And so they're spiraling, which is so weird because we've been doing this podcast since this whole Star Wars rebirth thing we started. We were talking and about, we were like, like, what is, if they did this and we were like, six years ago? Yeah, we were like, this is gold. Yeah, yeah. How could they screw this up? Well, actually, there are a million ways to screw it up and only one or two ways to get it right. All right, let's wrap it up there. Uh, we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then I'll be back with an interview with Joe Pekaski, showrunner of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger. Andy will be back on Monday. I, we're going to have to address the finale of Westworld. Yes, but also, Chris, we haven't even talked about this, but next week is Sicario week, right? I mean, we have a, it's a, it's the week of the soldado. It is the week of the soldado. So I'm going to suggest on air. So I can't back out of it. Uh-huh. I think we should revisit the first film a little bit on Monday's yes! pod. And then I think we should discuss the actual Dia del Soldado <laughs> later in the week. Okay. With hopefully with some special guests who are also soldados in our particular Sicario army. Yeah. Well, we'll see if we could do that for next, for this next Thursday or the following Monday, yeah. but uh, we'll have a full slate of stuff for you guys. We have some spe- special guests next week. Uh, we'll let you know about, um, and now our interview with Joe Pekaski. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you love to score amazing deals at incredible hotels, you will love Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, helping you find sweet deals at cool top-rated hotels. Hotel Tonight shows you the best deals at hotels you actually want to stay at. No more scrolling through endless lists of choices. And even though their name is Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last-minute bookings. You can book in advance, perfect for planners and procrastinators alike. Hotel Tonight is perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, staycations, three-day weekends, road trips, business bookings, and more. And it's so easy to use. Book hotels in 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. There's even the HT Perks program where the more you book, the better the deals get. I've been using Hotel Tonight for a minute now. And when I say a minute, I mean like 18 months. It is my app of choice when I visit the state of Nevada. I like to go to Lake Tahoe. I like to go to Las Vegas. I like to go... Sometimes I have to go to Reno 
to get to Lake Tahoe. So any place in Nevada. And you know what? You can use it for any other state in the nation either. Uh, it's so easy to use. Get the Hotel Tonight app now to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. That's Hotel Tonight, the only booking app you need. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Oars and Alps Aluminum-Free Deodorant. Did you know that roughly 60% of what you put on your skin is absorbed? Antiperspirant is full of harmful chemicals like aluminum that have been linked to numerous health problems and yellowing of armpits of your shirts. I hate that, man. Crisp white tea, yellow armpit stains, that's a problem. Oars and Alps Aluminum-Free Deodorant is a natural deodorant that actually works. This powerful deodorant uses cornstarch to absorb sweat and notes of cedarwood and fresh greens to mask odor. That is in my my smell palette right there. I love a cedarwood. But it leaves out the irritating chemicals like alcohol, which you can, you know, that can really cause your underarm to itch. Uh, It smells so good that I actually look forward to using it. Plus, it goes unclear so you don't get the white marks on your shirt. Head over to OASkincare.com. That's O-A-S-K-I-N-C-A-R-E.com and get 15% off your purchase of any Oars and Alps product, including their natural deodorant. Just use the code WATCH. That's O, then the letter A, skincare.com. Offer code WATCH, 15% off your purchase of any Oars and Alps product. All right, now I'm so happy to be joined by Joe Pekaski, the showrunner for Marvel's Cloak and Dagger. Joe, thanks for joining me today, man. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Love the show. Thank you It's very really... Much. Uh, it, I think I was, um, and I am an interesting test case to watch this show because I was very unfamiliar with the comic. So I was going into it kind of blind and was gripped immediately by the tone of the show. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about immediately was this sort of feeling of naturalism mm-hmm. that permeates the entire thing from the uh, the setting and the direction and the writing and the, and the, the feeling of the performances. Can you tell me about... You're driving around, you're sitting around, whatever you're doing, you know you're going to do this. What's the first thing you start thinking about where you're like, I want it to feel like X? I mean, I think the first thing is I want it to feel like nothing else that you see on television. There's, uh, I don't know if you notice, there's a few superhero movies, some superhero television <laughs> We sometimes shows. touch on those here, yeah. Yeah, and you kind of don't want to be just another one in that basket. So at some point when I started thinking about Tandy and Tyrone and we started talking about bringing them to New Orleans and started talking about the vibe – for some reason, the idea of, like, those Sundance coming-of-age movies came to mind. Sure. Like, you know, um, I don't know if you ever saw a movie like Like Crazy, which is this shaky yeah. camera, like, kind of very real-feeling relationship movie. And yeah. then Beyond the Lights was another one of those movies that were just about two damaged souls. So when they started asking about wish lists for directors, uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood was one of the first people on my list. And we got, you know, we hit it off. She has two boys, and she just did such a fantastic job at taking a stupid idea of, like, how do we be intimate? How do we tell the uncertainty mm-hmm. of coming of age? And then actualizing it with, you know, with this great DP, Tammy Riker, and 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 really kind of hopefully setting up a, a superhero show unlike one you've seen, at least in look and feel. Yeah, and so when you start having these conversations with Gina, are you guys um, talking about movies in terms of, like, I want it to feel like this or influences, or are you more like we're on location and we're starting to look around and this is dictating what we're doing? No, we definitely started talking about movies. I mean, we talked a lot about, you know, what she did on Beyond the Lights. You know, there's certain sequences in there, like when when Gugu is on the on the balcony, they're, yeah. just, they're unlike anything you've seen. You feel like you're right there, and you're feeling it like crazy. We watched and we talked about, and we broke apart. And um, 
And then, you know, once we had, you know, our particular scenes, our particular locations, those ideas got more specific, but they were on board. You know, I, I, growing up in television, um, or at least coming up in the last couple of years, I get sick of things like waiting for Dolly track to be laid and things like yeah. that. So, so we just, we're like, let's get up on the shoulders and let's just have these kind of handheld moments and kind of from there, we just, we had a really good plan. And then every day when we look at a location, it would get better. And then what Aubrey and Olivia were bringing to the piece, everything got better still. So it was just, a, it was a really optimal situation. I wanted to ask specifically about those two, obviously they're stars of the show, but it's one of those things where obviously, you know, you're watching stuff and maybe you also have your phone out or maybe you're also in like, you know, having a conversation with somebody else who's walking through your living room or something when it's on. And I actually found myself, uh, I think I shushed somebody who was trying to talk to me during it <laughs> because they jump, they leap off the screen. They do. How many people did you see for those roles? I, I imagine we probably, we probably had a list of over a thousand names each for those roles. We probably watched hundreds of whether there are audition reels or auditions themselves. And um, we were screwed about a week before we needed to have these roles. Really? And, and we were really scrambling because we hadn't, it's tough to find people that age who have that kind of raw emotional intensity. Yeah. And we didn't want to do the, you know, the the Dylan McKay, you know, 35-year-old <laughs> playing an 8-year-old type thing. We were really looking for people of age. So um, I had heard about – someone had pointed out Olivia and I was trying to track her down to get her into read. And then um, Gina, just her friend of hers, said this. She, she saw Aubrey in the, the night of yeah. um, on HBO. And we brought them in on the Friday before we had to leave for New Orleans on that Monday. And um, we just kind of like we were all kind of freaked out because we were like at the point where at some point you have to make a decision and pick your second or third choice. And then we saw them read separately and we like exhaled a little. And then Gina went and took them aside and didn't tell me what she was doing. But she basically took a scene from my script and said, like, this is what happens when you guys just improv it. Uh -huh. She brought them back up and they sat across, you know, just on this tiny stage from each other and. They just kind of improv basically the cemetery scene from the pilot, but they, you know, the idea of like meeting this soulmate just came out in both of them, and everybody got goosebumps. And like, you know, it was like, it was, they walked out the door, and we all kept our best poker faces on. And like, you hear the click of the door slam. Yeah. And like, just okay, like, let's, let's hire both of them. Touchdown, Dad. Thank God. And we all like, you know, we breathed, and I'm going to pee my pants a little. It was, just, <laughs> it was, it was not a classy situation, but we were, it was very down to the wire. And it, I, I always say, like, casting is like falling in love. Yeah. You only have to do it right once. And it feels like there's always only one person perfect for the role, and it sometimes takes forever to and find And you can them. get fixated on that person, I yeah, bet. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, I was wondering uh, if you mentioned the improv part. It, I, I, you know, writing for teens must the vernacular not making it, like, quote-unquote, too contemporary so that yeah. they're like, hey, can you take a picture of me on the Snapchat? Like, and stuff like that. So do you allow them to improv? How do you make sure that it has, it feels contemporary but timeless? Because that's kind of what it feels like to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I want, it's, honestly, I think if you kind of write down the middle, they add their own angles on stuff. And um, mm -hmm. a lot of it's on the day when you're just, you're talking through with them, like, does everything feel natural? And what would you say in this situation? And both of them, you know, Olivia's a, a, a singer-songwriter, pop star, and Aubrey writes his own music. So they both just have an amazing skill set in which every once in a while they'll come up with an alt where I'll be like, oh, that's better than the original script and get kind of angry at them because they're also like beautiful and talented and they should leave their writing to people like me. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but but no, they're they're just incredible collaborators and they know 
they're very honest about when something doesn't feel natural, and then we'll just adjust it. And they just um, also are just really good tennis partners with each other. So when they're in the scene, they adjust to each other, and it's really interesting that they both listen, which is what I think good actors do. Yeah. You know, you talked about um, your past experiences a little bit. I know you worked on Heroes, and you've worked with uh, IP before, you know, mm -hmm. coming into this stuff before. I've seen a couple of people be like, oh, well, the, you know, the first four episodes of, of Cloak and Dagger feel like an origin story, but they, they didn't really feel that way to me. I, for some reason, it felt more like we were joining these people in media res, that they were, the, their lives felt very lived in. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess that's partially the performances and the writing. And I was wondering about your approach to that idea of the fact that you have to introduce these characters to people and introduce these very special, you know, abilities that they have and this this sort of almost supernatural element to them but at the same time it's very character driven and they are living their lives already their house is yeah. already the way it looks i mean can you talk a little bit about setting it in that sort of way yeah i mean i think listen i think the comic book was fantastic and what bill mantelo and, and hannigan and everyone who kind of contributed to did an amazing job for the comic book medium but I think it's hard to tell a story in television in the long format where all of a sudden they're doing drugs and they're best friends and by the end of the first comic they're they're fighting gang members. So yeah. it felt like a good opportunity along the lines of what you said. I don't think – I think the population of people even within the geek and nerd community who know Cloak and Dagger well are very small. So there's an opportunity just to kind of really just invest in who Tandy is and who Tyrone is. You know, my plan is to do 100 episodes. You know, there's plenty, sure. of, there's plenty of people who can say no along the way, <laughs> yeah. but that's my plan. Um, and so particularly for these first four, you just want to really invest in who they are. And then also like the discovery of powers and kind of the discovery of the call to action. When I'm watching a superhero movie, I'm always like, I wish this could be forever. I wish I wish Peter Parker could be crying out his webs on the roof for, for 20 more minutes. But in the movie format, you don't get to do that. In television, it's just really about taking these big moments like them having their first conversation, yeah. which we land on in episode four, and just allowing it to breathe and allowing it to be character-based. Do you feel like, you know, whether you mentioned Spider-Man, and obviously and there's been past oh, a big you know motif of, of comic book uh, writing and, and superhero movies anyway is this idea of like, the emerging superhero as a stand-in for puberty or whatever. And, mm -hmm. like, and the, the X-Men obviously did that really well. And um, I was wondering with this, though, it seems more like, especially in the early episodes that I've seen, that their, uh, their superpowers are almost like this emerging sense of empathy and this emerging sense of being able to identify or... Uh, feel what other people are feeling in a lot of ways. That's very difficult for teenagers, I think. Yeah, but and I think that's it. I think it's part of growing up is you know we I think we hit Pater in in some sort of accident when we figured out Tandy, who's this crazy cynic who thinks the world screwed her over and she's going to screw it over, is now forced to witness people's hopes and witness yeah. the the world in which people want it to be. And then Tyrone, who feels like he's alone and feeling fear having him see that other people have fears as bad, if not yeah. worse than he is. I think I think that's part of it. And I think empathy is something that a lot of us could use. Maybe all of us could use. This is an interesting thing even in America right now where yeah. a lot of us just refuse to, you know, to pull off the headlines right now, look at these little kids as if they're our own kids. And then there's people who say, no, these are, these are our babies, whether we like it or not. Yeah. So I think, um, I think the idea of those two 
feeling like they're alone and then understanding there's other people out there who feel the same way is is hopefully a theme that we get to run all the way through this series. I know a lot of uh, different shows and movies get made in places like uh, Louisiana or Atlanta because of, you know, it's like the tax breaks makes it affordable. But man, like you... You showed a Louisiana in this show that I was really into, like just the specificity of it. Yeah, and that's the fun. I mean, it's like as a as a lazy writer, it's fantastic <laughs> because the more you research Louisiana, the more it presents story to yeah. us. So, you know, we have a fantastic room of writers where we hopefully try to represent lots of points of view, and, and a couple of them are familiar with Louisiana. And it's interesting when we talk about things like the Mardi Gras Indians, which I had never heard of, yeah, um, or or Voodoo and its reality. When we when we say like, what is Voodoo? I mean, people we know the Voodoo oogie boogie that you see, but like understanding this is a religion that the enslaved had that they brought over from Africa and the West Indies, and then used Catholicism to mask it so they could go to church and look up at a stained glass window and say, this says, you know, Saint. St. Teresa, but I'm thinking Mama Brigitte and yeah. I'm applying this. And it's just, it's such a fascinating place. And I think it's our most European city. Yes. So it has the most like mysticism to it. And you have, there's this really interesting feeling that they are, um, these two characters like walking across a very stark landscape. It's like almost abandoned in this post storm world that they live in. Mm-hmm. And it's that heightened sense of, it's slightly surreal you know yeah walking across boards to get into abandoned homes and you know especially as like they find themselves waking up in different places it just feels so almost like a a weird wonderland a dark wonderland yeah Yeah. and that's i mean that's that's exactly it and credit to gina and, and cliff charles who's our permanent dp and and he um he actually did Spike Lee's documentaries on on New Orleans. So oh, okay. he really had a sense of like capturing exactly that feel. And it's hard, to be honest, like when you shoot, uh, there's a shot in the pilot when Tandy's walking to the trailer and we didn't plan it, but there's one of those markings that the FEMA markings yeah. on trailers that showed, you know, we checked for bodies and things like that. These things that are morbid and crazy and the city is filled with such amazing people and life just keeps punching them in the nose and they keep getting getting up and so it felt like such a good city to tell that story and and everywhere you turn it's beautiful exactly like you explained talk to me a little bit about uh the tv landscape now i guess talk, uh, i'm curious about what it's like to go from you've done you've done work for major networks and you've done work for smaller networks and now you're working on freeform and it feels like you guys are able to kind of make the show you want to make here. And it, it, I was interested in the episode length for the season for you, how you're feeling about the way you are allowed or slash being asked to make TV now compared to, say, five, six, seven years ago. It's interesting because it's 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 partially better and partially worse. I mean, there's so much TV right now where you have to make a splash. I mean, it's honestly, if I told this show and it didn't have the word Marvel behind it, there might be half as many people tuning in. Yeah. So it's... um. But then I think if you gain trust and the people at Marvel and the people at Freeform trust what we tried to do, you know, when we said we're going to start a slow burn through four episodes and then start creeping up to what's a normal superhero story, they didn't they weren't they didn't entirely understand and then we talked it through and then they got excited about it. I think the good news is I think smart executives, which I'm happy to work with from both Marvel and Freeform, understand that if you do something quality, we have an electronic landscape in which people will find it. Yeah. And so I think there's yeah. it's a good opportunity. You don't have to break the bank. You don't it doesn't have to be broadcast television where you need to find fifteen million people in the first three weeks or you're canceled. Yeah. You know, like we live in a world where there's shows like Lone Star, which might still be running, or things that just didn't quite meet yeah. standards for certain things. I I still say 
Buffy would still be on the air if, if they were rounding the seventh season right now because there'd be weird pay things and sure. Indiegogos. And so it feels like a special time to tell the story you want to tell. And I feel like the only shows that really get left by the wayside are the ones where they're still compromising. How does it uh, affect you as a TV viewer? Like, do you find yourself, are you a week to week, night to night guy still? Or are you saving a season of billions to watch at the end of summer? Or, you know, like, how are you kind of watching stuff now, especially I would imagine being in production at various points. Yeah, it's impacts a, that. it depends on the show. I mean, there's certain shows you do do week to week. Um, and, and, but some of them you kind of want to build up to. Mm-hmm. And it's, but it's funny also because like, because I'm a drama writer, I watch so many more comedies because it's like watching drama. Sometimes it's like going to work. Yeah. You're like, Oh, I like this. So it's like, you know, you watch a show like Barry, which is just genius. And you're like, okay, someone knows what they want. You yeah. Know, Bill Hader's just bringing it every single episode and they have got this great point of view. Um, no, there's still a lot of TV to watch. And I still think television is like a slightly superior landscape, at least for my for my tastes to movies. I feel like when you find the right TV show, it just keeps challenging you. And, and there's certain movies that blow you away, but I feel like it's not as consistent. Yeah, I think you're probably right there. All right, well, Joe, thank you so much for coming by, man. I just think the show is, is like a small miracle in the way it kind of like it, the, the kind of world is presenting is really, really, really uh, exciting to watch. So you just wrote the next like four ad campaigns. Great. A small miracle. <laughs> that is the greatest thing ever said about anything I've ever done. So Thanks thank for you. coming by, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Oars and Alps. Did you know that 60% of what you put on your skin is absorbed? Antiperspirant is full of harmful chemicals that have been linked to numerous health problems. Oars and Alps aluminum-free deodorant is a natural deodorant that actually works. This powerful deodorant uses cornstarch to absorb sweat and notes of cedarwood and fresh greens to mask the odor. Head over to OA Skincare, that's the letter O, letter A, skincare.com, and get 15% off your purchase of any Oars and Alps products, including their natural deodorant, when you use the code WATCH.